Measuring the planet's temperature, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last year was the fifth warmest on record, according to new data released by NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It continues a trend of a warming planet. Global temperatures in 2022 were 1.6 degrees above NASA's baseline period from 1951 to 1980. We'll hear from one NASA scientist about this new data and how space-based assets are helping us keep an eye on our warming planet. Then, it's already a busy year for rocket launches. We'll speak with one commercial space analyst about the year ahead. Measuring our planet's temperature and a new rocket roundup. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. It's getting hotter. That's according to data compiled by NASA and NOAA through a slew of weather stations and instruments deployed around the planet. And NASA is using space-based instruments to get an even better understanding of temperature measurements and trends. Here to talk more about the recent temperature analysis and NASA's efforts to track our temps from space is Karen St. Germain, Division Director of the Earth Science Division in the Science Mission Directorate at NASA. Karen, thanks again for joining us. It's great to be with you. NASA and NOAA um, released their annual findings of, of the global temperature. What, what did the data show us? Well, the data showed us that 2022 was tied for the fifth warmest year on record alongside 2015. But perhaps more importantly, it showed us that the last nine years are the hottest nine years on record. Um, so it's definitely telling us that the planet is warming. Karen, tell us a bit about how how this data was was collected. What was the process? Well, NASA and NOAA independently analyze uh, more than 26,000 weather stations and thousands of ship uh, and buoy-based ocean records to access global temperature changes. So it's a, it's a real merging of data from a wide variety of sources. And we do this independently and then, and then compare our answers. I was reading a bit about this. These, these numbers are compared to, to a baseline, right? I mean, tell us, tell us how, how scientists make the comparison as to, you know, seeing these global trends that, that we are getting warmer and what is it compared against? Um, well, it's uh, we, we've been collecting uh, data about the temperature of the oceans and the atmosphere for a very long time. And, and generally, we compare today's data to the post-industrial or sorry, the pre-industrial age uh, observations. And uh, and that helps us understand the impact that humans are having on mm -hmm. these temperature changes. Mm -hmm. The, the data that was used in, in um, this analysis is, is from a lot of these ground sensors, but, but NASA is working on a lot of things from space, right? I mean, we, we, we chatted about that last time you were on. Um, I'm wondering if you can just fill us in about how some of these missions are, are coming online and, and how the data from, from these space observations are going to help us get an even more robust picture of, of this changing uh, climate we have here on the planet. Yeah, uh, Brendan, the, the vantage point of space allows us to see the entire planet. And that's important because Earth works as a system. What happens in the oceans and the atmosphere and the land and even the Arctic 
ice and the Antarctic ice, they all work together and influence one another. And we can only see how that works uh, when we look from space. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a, um, a, a suite of 26 uh, missions on orbit. We'll be adding several more this year. And, uh, and these, these systems, they make very precise measurements of not just temperature, but other attributes of the atmosphere, the land, the ocean, and the ice. Uh, and those, those measurements allow us to model, uh, to understand how the earth works and to capture that understanding in mathematical models. And it's those models that allow us to project into the future. And mm -hmm. that's really where we can start informing decision-making. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that they help with models, but I want to go back to something you said, and this may be a silly question, um, but when I think of, you know, measuring the temperature, um, I feel like putting a thermometer outside is is a great way to do that. How are these space-based satellites measuring the temperature from space? And it, it, is it as accurate as, 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 you know, me holding a, a mercury thermometer outside my window? What scientists refer to the kind of measurement that you just mentioned as a point measurement, an mm -hmm. in situ measurement. It's a great measurement of the temperature precisely outside your window. But that can be affected by many, many things, including uh, is it getting direct sunlight, for example? Is, is, are you on the south side of the house or the north side of the house? So what we do from space is we, we can see uh, a broader area and measure that temperature over a broader area and then do that over the entire globe. And that really allows us to see trends much more, more clearly than we can see from any individual point measurement. Mm -hmm. and, and I would assume that, that these, these instruments are just getting even more sensitive and, and more robust as technology develops. I mean, can you tell us a bit about how how these these kind of climate tracking satellites differ from you know the ones that that may have launched a few decades ago you know what makes them so special and, and how has this technological development really helped scientists like yourself drill down and, and make these measurements that can inform these models that you spoke of it's a great question and in at nasa in our earth science program it's an end-to-end -end program so we invest in technologies so that we'll be able to make better measurements tomorrow next year 10 years from now than we can make today more precise more accurate better spatial resolution that is to say a finer resolution so uh you know the the equivalent would be uh going from a blurry picture to a crisp picture and, and developing new technologies that allow us to measure things that we've never been able to measure before. So I'll give you one example. In December, we launched the SWAT mission. And it's a mission I'm really excited about because it's gonna fundamentally change our understanding of water on the planet. We will, for the first time, have a global inventory, a global understanding of both fresh water, but also the currents and the eddies that are in our oceans that are moving not just heat, but also nutrients and carbon around the globe. We'll be able to see all of that for the first time. And it's because the new technology on the SWAT mission is giving us a finer spatial resolution, that clarity at a much finer 
uh, grain than we've ever had before. But Karen, I mean, with with a much clearer picture going from from blurry to crisp, we're also seeing the picture is quite dire, right? I mean, it's the fifth hottest temperature since you've been tracking this, according to this this most recent uh, analysis that came out. I mean, does does that translate into action? I mean, what happens now that we have a clearer picture that is so depressing? <laughs> that is that our planet is getting so warm. Well, our, our planet is getting warmer. The, the good news is we know why, right? Mm-hmm. Our, the science tells us why that's happening. And it gives us uh, not just information about the overall level. So for example, the overall increase in temperature, but it, we can see from satellites how those temperature increases are manifesting themselves in impacts mm-hmm. around the world. In our coastal communities, they're seeing rising sea level and uh, increased risk associated with storm surge. In our heartland communities, we're seeing uh, challenges to agriculture because of the changing uh, weather patterns. So part of what we want to do here is inform communities so they can make better decisions to prepare for the changes that we're seeing and also, frankly, inform their choices uh, that will affect the future because there's a broad range between the best and and most challenging future outcomes. Mm -hmm. And to get to those better future outcomes, we need people to be uh, informed and making, uh, making choices that get us to that better future. I mean, I, I'm starting to think of, you know, I, I'm here in Florida. You know, we had an unprecedented storm season with, you know, very strong storms. Um, that's going to keep happening. The The frequency and strength will be increasing because of, of these, you know, global temperature changes. All of us here in Florida rely on, on weather satellites to tell us where that storm is going to be. So I, I think that's a good example of, of us being able to get the picture of what's happening and, and, and see it happening down here on earth. Are you optimistic that the clearer the picture is for the general public, the more that they will see that this is really, really an issue that we need to be tackling? Absolutely. And and of course, just as you pointed out, there are very near-term urgent decisions that people have to make on a daily basis. And then there are longer-term decisions Mm -hmm. about infrastructure investments and and so forth. And we want to be able to inform both of those. We want to work with our counterparts at NOAA to uh, always help improve those forecasts, both the track and the intensity and the uh, the potential storm surge and flooding and so forth. So we want to support NOAA in advancing those near-term uh, decisions that people have to make, but also those longer-term decisions about how and where to rebuild if, if after there's damage, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's on the horizon, Karen? You, you mentioned SWAT coming online. Um, what else are you really excited about from from the Earth Science Division that's that's leaving our planet to take a better look at this planet? You know, I'll I'll talk about a few missions we've got uh, coming up this year. I mentioned that we've got 26 on orbit. We're launching three more this year. Um, one is called uh, Snoopy. It's a it's a six U CubeSat, which means it's it's pretty small, um, probably about the size of a bread box or something mm-hmm. like that, and uh, and that's going to. Uh, demonstrate a new technology for measuring root zone soil moisture. So that's all about helping the agriculture community really understand what's happening below the surface. Um, Another one is Tempo, 
uh, Tempo is a, um, it, it is a UV, an ultraviolet spectrometer. And what that's going to do um, is give us the first space-based observations of air pollutants over North America on an hourly basis while the sun is shining. So that's, uh, that's an incredible new uh, capability. And it's important because as temperature rises, we are also seeing more air quality issues. Mm-hmm. So that'll that'll be a, an important new capability. And the last one I'll mention ties back to uh, the point you made earlier about tropical storms. That's uh, the Tropics mission. That's a constellation of CubeSats. And I think we talked about that last time. We did. We did. Um, yeah. So so we're... Uh, that was intended to be a constellation of six CubeSats. We lost the first launch last year, so that was a loss of two of them. We've got four more. We're going to try to get them on orbit in time for this hurricane season, and that's that's going to be an exciting mission because it's going to give us a rapid temporal refresh. In other words, a lot of looks at storms as they develop over the Atlantic. And finally, Karen, um, you know, the, the the report that we spoke of at the start of the conversation, that's out. I'll put a link to it on our website. But all of this data that's coming in, is this data just available to scientists? Or, or how can how can someone like me take a look at, at all of this data coming in and, and, and see these trends and, and look at what's happening on this planet? Yeah, so glad you asked. All of NASA's data are freely available to the public. And another one of those initiatives that we're investing in this year is really to try to advance what we call open science which is to get not just the data, but the science out into the hands of people who can use it uh, faster than we ever have before. That was Karen St. Germain, NASA's Earth Science Division Director. Still to come, it's going to be a busy year for new rocket launches, a roundup of what's to come. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. It's already a busy year for rocket launches. Did anyone catch SpaceX's Falcon Heavy launch over the weekend? And there's no signs of slowing down. It's going to be a busy year for launches, including the maiden voyage of a 3D-printed rocket. Well, here to talk more about the year ahead for rockets is Anthony Colangelo. He hosts the podcast Main Engine Cutoff and joins us now. Anthony, welcome back to the show. Anthony, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so good to be back. I, I don't know how long it's been, but it feels like it's been a while. It's been too long, so I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're back. And there's a lot to talk about uh, since you've been here. So we're going to do like the the rapid fire of rocket updates um, in this <laughs> segment here. And let's start with Virgin Orbit. This was, you know, billed as a super exciting flight that was, you know, could be one of the first from, from the UK. Vertical launch, super cool, uh, and it didn't go so well. So, so bring us up to speed. Talk about Virgin Orbit's plan up up to this point, and you know what kind of rocket was this, and then what do we know about the failure? Yeah, this was a huge launch for them in terms of uh, you know not necessarily that like the technical side was different from the other launches that they'd done, but they had hyped this up so much because uh, it was showing off 
really their one unique thing that they have to sell, uh, which is this ability to, you know, their first stage is an airplane, so they can take off from any airport where they're able to get rocket fuel service to them so that they can fill their own rocket up, but then just take off on a regular runway and then fly out over the ocean, drop the vehicle off of the airplane and fly to orbit. So, you know, it, it works exactly the same way that it did when they were taken off from, from Mojave, but the fact that they can pack up and go launch from, you know, foreign soil, and in, in the case of the UK, domestic soil, that was a big selling point that, that, that they could say, hire us, we'll fly to you, you can integrate your satellite right on board from your own country, and then we'll fly and launch you to space. That is a that is the one thing that they're able to sell as a unique selling point, because they're the size of Virgin Orbit's Launcher One is is pretty small payload, both mass and volume. It's it's got a very small fairing, can only take, they say, up to 500 kilograms to orbit. From what I understand, they've had trouble getting to that amount, so they're probably in the three to 500 kilogram range right now. So that's a very small payload range. Uh, it's really competitive with uh, Rocket Lab's Electron, just to give you a sense of scale, um, and they're relatively high price for that service. They're about $12 million right now for a launch is what they advertise and some of their old contracts have been. I'm sure that's higher uh, in this in this economy. It's a little probably a little pricier this, these days. But uh, the, the bigger rockets in the small launch category that can launch about one ton to orbit, about two to three times as much as Virgin Orbit can put up, they're kind of encroaching on that price into the 10 to $15 million range. So Virgin Orbit's in this really awkward spot in the market. They're too expensive for what they can do. Their one unique selling point is something that is unique, but it doesn't really seem to be catching on enough to, you know, have them. They're not really selling that many launchers in this way. So it's something that, you know, higher ups in government talk about being able to have domestic launch capability, but it doesn't seem to be driving that much of a market. So really important mission for them to, to show that that was a useful thing. And, you know, they sunk those satellites right into the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, that's not great. Yeah. It's it's nice to know that rocket companies and people that are trying to put into space are also dealing with inflation as well. So like eggs and and the price to orbit is going yeah, up. So I think it's probably tracking bit, right about the same. It's a bit refreshing. <laughs> um so, so I mean you meant you mentioned that this 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 was a lot they had a lot to prove with this launch to to show its versatility. Obviously it didn't work. There was an anomaly on the second stage. Where does this where does this put Virgin Orbit? With the caveat that this is all complete speculation at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have no idea what happened to the vehicle itself. It failed sometime in the second stage burn on its way to orbit, um, but they haven't given any other technical details. But they're in really bad shape. Uh, even before this mission, they were really in bad financial shape. Uh, they only had a couple of months worth of runway. There is some uh, arrangement they have with a hedge fund that uh, could potentially provide them with a couple hundred million dollars of funding. I don't know enough about hedge funds nor that plan. I guess I'll have to drive like an hour north in Jersey where that hedge fund is headquartered and ask some questions. But it, it does look like they're going to run out of money sometime this year. And the only way they could have averted that was if they got up to the launch cadence they had promised for so long, which was six to 12 launches a year, um, start bringing in some revenue that could have offset, you know, at least given them more of a, of a runway. That's, I'm realizing this is going to be an annoying pun, but that's the word for it. <laughs> um, but now they have to go into what will likely be a multi-week to month investigation of what actually happened here, implement fixes on that. And it, it seems incredibly likely that they're going to run out of money before their next launch. So, All right. So from, from Virgin, let's move on to Vulcan. We got some tweets from, from ULA that Vulcan is on the move, which gets it one step closer to launch. I know we, we've talked about this rocket before, but 
I mean, how excited are you for for Vulcan's maiden voyage? Oh, I'm really excited for this rocket. It's it's incredibly important to the industry overall. The the missions that it's flying uh, to the moon, to the ISS, uh, for satellite constellations like Amazon's Kuiper, they're all really important aspects to the space industry right now. And um, the number one rule of space uh, when it comes to the business and strategy side is if you have pictures of hardware, you don't hide those. You show those, right? So if someone's not showing you pictures of hardware, they have no hardware. Once you have hardware, you're taking pictures constantly and showing this stuff off. So finally, we've seen this from ULA where they're shipping their first couple of flight vehicles stages to the Cape. Uh, we've seen now the first stage. You've seen this, the upper stage, Centaur 5. They all have their engines. It's amazing. Everything's going well there. There's still a long road to go, though. They are going to take this all to the Cape, integrate it. There's some more testing to do. Um, what is going to be on top of the rocket is a big question mark right now. So slated for this first launch is Astrobotics Peregrine Lander heading to the moon. Um, I have not seen any pictures of their engines. I've seen pictures of their lander, but I have not seen pictures of the engines that go on that lander. And you can't really land on the moon without those. So um, at this point, it looks like they're going to try to get those engines shipped to the Cape to integrate with the, the lunar lander there. And then go ahead and try to fly. I have no idea how long that's going to take. I don't know if ULA is going to wait for them or if they're going to miss their bus ride to space. Um, ULA really needs to get this vehicle flying, so they're not really incentivized to wait around for, from what we understand, a payload that didn't pay that much to fly on this vehicle. So, you know, if ULA is ready to go with this vehicle and Astrobotics not, I think we'll see ULA fly this vehicle in May or, you know, springtime is my bet right now. May feels right just because I know something's going to take longer. Um, they say quarter one, but, you know, they haven't given us a real date and the end of quarter one is pretty close at this point. So, you know, springtime, I expect to be coming down and hanging out for this kind of launch. And, and Vulcan will be replacing ULA's workhorse Atlas V. I mean, do you have a case of the sads knowing that uh, Atlas V will be no more soon? <laughs> uh, nah, <laughs> I'm fine with it. It's, it's not that different. It's going to look mostly the same. It's got a better upper stage. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not pouring one out for Atlas V too much. It had its time. It's got it's had plenty okay. of launches, so it's a good <laughs> rocket. But, you know, this day and age, Russian engines, eh, I don't know. I don't know about that anymore. <laughs> Time to move on. Time to move on. All right. And moving on with this conversation, you, you mentioned you mentioned this company earlier, Rocket Labs. Um, it's had uh, quite a bit of success launching from New Zealand. Um, and now it's going to be launching a little bit closer to you right in in Wallops, Virginia. Uh, tell us a bit about the the plan for Rocket Labs new home and, and what's on the docket this year. Yeah, they've got, they say they've got a bunch of launches lined up for uh, launching out of this new launch complex in Virginia. They they opened this up uh, to provide launch capability out of the U.S., which, you know, like we were talking about Virgin Orbit, sometimes that is important for government agencies, departments of defense to be able to fly their satellites from their own soil. Um, so these, a lot of these missions will be, uh, National Reconnaissance Office tends to love uh, rocket lab launches. They've really been a big fan. Space Force, a lot of these other agencies would fly uh, out of the U.S. if they can get there to that to particular orbit they're going to. Uh, so Rocket Lab opened this up to enable those kind of missions, but to also increase the amount that they're able to fly because they only can fly a certain amount of times out of New Zealand. They have two launch pads down there, but you run out of time in the schedule, right, when you've got operations that take longer. So opening up a third launch complex is really helpful. They have uh, some payload processing facilities uh, near the launch site there that can handle special vehicles that need special handling. So that's cool. Uh, and then they're also investing there to launch their uh, newest rocket that will be coming up in a couple of years called Neutron. Much bigger rocket. It's kind of in the Falcon 9 category. 
It'll have a reusable first stage. It'll come back to land just off the coast of the launch complex there in Virginia. So they're investing pretty heavily uh, in Virginia for this upcoming capability. And, you know, that's Electron probably is less of a motivating factor to build out their complex there in Virginia as it is to have room to expand with this uh, neutron kind of capability as well. And and closer to you, right? I mean, you'll you get a, a much better view. I mean, <laughs> that's going to yeah, be exciting, um, right? It'll be a great view. As, <laughs> as we're talking, I'm about a week away from driving down to see this first launch. Uh, if the schedule holds, they're flying on January 23rd. By the time you listen to this, wherever you are, that'll probably be out of date and they'll have slipped a couple of days because that's kind of what happens. But, you know, ideally, I've taken a three and a half hour drive or so and uh, getting to see a rocket launch. I've seen Antares fly out of there before. And uh, it's you would you would love it there because it's like Bizarro World Kennedy Space Center. Like it feels you're in a marsh. It feels very similar. There's a lot of bugs. You know, we don't have alligators up this way as far, but you, you've got kind of the same vibe going on but uh everything's just a little bit different it's an uncanny valley kind of thing but you can stand really close to vehicles here you're like two miles away from antares and antares basically has atlas 5 engines uh so it's awesome to be that close and in the case of uh, electron the closest public viewing of electron in new zealand is like 15 miles away and it's a tiny rocket so you're really just looking at you know a tiny black stick going up into the sky so i don't even know if like Peter Beck has stood this close to a rocket when it's launched, an Electron. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's been that close. So it'll be a real treat for everyone that gets to uh, see it from uh, the press site. Or there's some public viewing areas if you're in the area and you want to uh, check out uh, Electron. There's some really good spots in uh, Wallops Island. To mm -hmm. So you're excited about a small launcher taking off from, from your backyard. I'm super excited about a new small launcher getting ready to take off from my backyard. Uh, just quickly in like the minute we have left here, Anthony, how excited are you for Relativity Space's Terran 1 launch. I'm really curious to see what happens with this. Uh, it's a really unique vehicle, the way it's been built, right? It's used this additive manufacturing 3D printing to build the stages. I believe you've touched it, so I'm really curious to see how that <laughs> affects things. Um, but they've been really hyped. They've taken in billions of dollars of funding at this point, uh, and I want to know if they're going to be able to perform. You know, they've got some big plans for the future, but can they stick this first uh, launch? I hope so. I hope I hope something good happens here because small launch is in need of a pick me up at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm hoping when my my touching of the second stage during a, a tour I had recently will be a, a, a touch of good luck and and not the opposite. <laughs> so time. I mean, if, it, time if, will if they tell. if they successfully launch on their first launch, you need to touch every rocket before its first launch. I think that's the rule. <laughs> That'll be the rule, and I I would be happy to oblige. <laughs> Tori, Tori Bruno, give him a call. Exactly. I know I know he listens to you, so Tori, I'd be happy to. Touch that first Falcon. <laughs> We've been chatting Amazing. with Anthony Colangelo. He's the host and producer of Main Engine Cutoff. Uh, get more information about the podcast at mainenginecutoff.com. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks, Brendan. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Script editing from Nicole Darton-Creston. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brandon Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>